You've been hearing ads for Zencaster these past months. Interested in sponsoring this show or podcast ads for your business? Go to zen.ai forward slash the archaeology show and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Out there in Rock Art Podcast Land, episode 81, coming up with uh, Don Lapone, noted uh, and gifted author. We'll be talking about shamanism, its reality, its effectiveness, and its relationship to rock art. This is going to be a great one. Well, hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast Land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, for the 80th episode. Can you imagine that? We are blessed and gifted to have Don Lapone with us uh, today. Don's a noted scholar in rock art and in the study of shamanism and the relationship of shamanism as a uh, modality, as a reality in terms of its effectiveness in healing and other aspects of the religious metaphors. Don, are you with us today? I'm with you. Hi, Alan. Wonderful. It's great to have you back. I know you've been working very, very hard for many, many months on this uh, very lengthy monograph that uh, will document some of the aspects of the interrelationships of shamanism and rock art. Where should we start? What do you think is the best way to approach this subject? We could either start with a case study or we could start okay. with the evolution of this paper. What do you think would be more interesting? Well, I, th I think we need a thumbnail for the evolution of the paper. And then we should jump right on in for the uh, balance with the uh, case studies that you had alluded to, to showcase and demonstrate the uh, direct interrelationship of shamanism and rock art 
and the uh, utility and effectiveness of shamanism. How's that? Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, Don, g- give us a thumbnail of how we ever got into this thing. Okay, well, as you know, we did two books on the La Rosa tradition, which is in Southern California, Northern Baja, Mexico, and into Arizona, about as far east as Gila Bend, and up the Colorado into the Grand Canyon. So I don't know if that makes it the largest tradition in Southern California, but it's probably about 400 plus miles long and 200 miles wide. So it's pretty big. Despite all of that territory, before we started these books, there were maybe two dozen sites known in uh, the United States and probably the same in Mexico. By the time we were done 12 years later, but we had a small army of Native Americans, uh, archaeologists and other scientists, a lot of people from healthcare, walked the desert for more than 10 years, maybe up to about 15 years. And we ended up with about 170 sites in the States. I couldn't really get Mexico on board to do anything. So it unfortunately could only be the States, but hopefully one day they will inventory theirs. But so what happened, because I think we have, in terms of the United States, you know, nine tenths of this tradition that's discoverable with de-stretch and other techniques. So we have a pretty good idea about what was going on with um, their tradition. And so with these books, tell us uh, the direction the research took post book one and book two. Well, these books, the first two books were sort of maybe like college level general, typical, but good rock art surveys. You know, we had a lot of photos. We had articles by experts in Southern California and a couple in Arizona to help us. It was kind of a who's who of Southern California archaeology, like you're in them, for example. But so are a lot of other people. Shackley comes to mind because we used to be neighbors. But all the stars are in there. Dennis Gallegos, uh, David Whitley, different people, a bunch of San Diego people. However, we didn't really analyze La Rumorosa per se. And so I set out to do a paper on La Rumorosa, more of a scientific treatment and, and did the ethnography and some other tables about what was there and some of the metaphoric themes that we saw. However, it took a big turn because I started reading more, just trying to get my handle on La Rumorosa and to me, it looked like rock art had been stuck since Mircea Eladi came along. He always gets credited with 1962, but the book was written in the 40s, written in French in 1950. So it was already out there. And to me, the boilerplate rock art article would do a survey, would talk about Eladi, would bring in the neuropsychological model which came from data 1927 through 1940. And that's it. And then, oh, they would close with my favorite line, rock art is unknowable. That's not true. But within the the methodology that was being used, it was true because the Native Americans were excluded to a large degree from giving their opinion by nearly every author except one. And that one was Richard Stoffel. And I encourage the audience, uh, you can go to the Arizona University of Arizona repository, and they have all of his articles, plus hundreds of thousands of 
other articles and you can look at them all for free. He's kind of been a model that you can do this and you can get Native American input as to the significance of rock art. It's been a mystery to me why he's basically the only one doing that. So anyway, that's that was the beginning of looking under the rocks, I guess you'd say. So, Don, what makes Richard Stoffel so unique in his uh, particular methodology and in, in his particular let's okay. say, theoretic, well, theoretic or methodological perspective? Yeah, I don't think he's too much of a theorist. I think he he will pick an area like uh, one CRM or that I, I really like cultural resource management report, which mm-hmm. I almost never read because they're so dull and there isn't much to learn there. They're kind of like facts only, and they are often uh, etic in their nature. The Native Americans are in there, but only as a, not a token. They're fulfilling the law by having their input. Yeah, but they're usually in some uh, appendix of a thousand pages yeah. or something. No one's going to sure. find them, that's for sure. But when Richard does something, whether it's an article or a report, they're right in there with him. And even though the Native Americans don't think that much of science, it's not just uh, who was it, Vin Deloria, who didn't think that much of science. But in general, they just don't see why it's so important or what we're looking for. They're looking for something else. And But Richard puts them in there with their ideas, and everybody treats each other respectfully. In fact... One rich report, I think it's called Yanawat, Y-A-N-A-W-A-N-T, is with the Paiute in Kanab Creek, where I've hiked. And so it had some meaning to me. And there's pictures of them together laughing. Okay, you don't see that much in many uh, archaeological articles. You see words like primitive, superstitious, irrational, stuff like that. And so it's, you're not going to get much cooperation. And I know this sounds, you know, it sounds terrible to say, but I think that the Native Americans hold the answers to the meaningful questions of rock art if we would just talk to them. Well, Don, I, th- I think you're right. And I've said this before. My revelation came when I did the uh, handbook of the Kauaisu. And in four years of working directly with my co-author, who was the former headman or president of the Kauai Sioux Nation and Eastern Kern Native Americans. I learned more in four years working with them than I did in 40 years doing it on my own. I'm just trying to no, understand the anthropology. And some of the epiphanies that I had were so striking that I had to, you know, pen them and also had uh, a number of Native people as co-authors on my major articles. Is um, who's your co-author, Donald? One was Harold Williams, and there was an, there's another one who's a actually a, a bighorn sheep singer, and he's uh, from the Serrano and and Coia nations, and he's yeah. uh, he's helped us as well. I think it's moving in the right direction. I do too. So so there's an there's one example. You had mentioned some some other examples that may not be so profound or so integrated or or that come across much more adversarial you don't have to you don't have to you know name names but right. how how does that how does that exactly work how does how does that come across and what's the perspective of 
let's say, a conventional researcher looking at rock art that does not sort of bode for that integration, what particular explanatory platform would they use? Well, I also started looking at people that were doing um, more innovative approaches, like Bayesian kinetics is a big buzz thing in social sciences right now. Well, it's complicated. And so I, I got into some of the methodology and right away started discovering critics of the social sciences and archaeology and what their approach was, you know, their, edit, their outsider approach and not going to the source culture. And that led me around kind of about the validity of the literature in general, not just archaeology. And there's a prominent epidemiologist at Stanford who's one of the leaders in the country, uh, John Ioannidis. And he made he has three articles, and they've been in the top ten, I think, on PNAS or Scopus or... Uh-huh. One of them, or it's not Academia Edu. It it might be ResearchGate, but he has three of the top ten articles, and mm-hmm. these three articles are why eighty five percent of the literature is useless, wrong, and I forget the third term, n- not needed. Mm-hmm. And I read his articles and I thought, wow, we really have some improvement to do. And then the American Statistician Association wrote a 400-page supplement, I think from 2018, and they were really down on our literature and psych literature, saying that we were, you know, detached, we were misusing statistics. Uh, We basically would, you know, write our article after we got the results, Hmm. rather than a pre-register technique, which is they're trying to push right now. So what has happened in the the discipline of, uh, let's call it uh, medicine, and also psychology, and also the study perhaps of uh, some of the ethnobotanicals that's uh, been a bit of a revolution where we're seeing a veneration or certainly an acceptance of some of the elements of shamanism and a learning or embracing of those techniques, uh, employing them uh, in certain modalities, certainly modified, to uh, assist those who are ill. Boy, am I glad you asked that question. You know, I don't know when you introduced me to Michael Winkleman, who was uh, trained at Irvine, went to Arizona State University, now lives in Brazil. I'm not sure if he's coming back. He says he doesn't want to, but he's still in contact with other people. And I I email him every couple months to to Mm -hmm. ask him questions and that he's always real good. But anyway, Michael Winkleman I asked him when I was done with his book, which took me a couple of years to understand uh, his shamanism Mm -hmm. book in 2010, but he's updated it several times. But I I like that book. I said, okay, I read all your theory, but can they really do this? And so he pointed me in the direction of Bill Lyons' book, who it's a very admired book. It was picked up by Cambridge University Press in 2020 or 2019. But the original Mm -hmm. was 2012, and he changed some of the science in it, but it's minor, so either edition is fine. He said, read Bill Lyon's book, Spirit Talkers. And Spirit Talkers, I forget, it's like 500 pages or so of medicine men. It's just on the Native American practice, and he has a chapter on quantum or quantum physics. Uh, It's the first chapter, and it's difficult. 
to read. And we don't really know at this point if the Native Americans do what they do because of quantum science, but there is a relationship. Anyway, so I read his book, and it covers basically from about the 1940s until about 1980 or so. And he was uh, an anthropology professor at Berkeley and stopped working and followed the, the active shaman around for about 30 years. And he had a close, closest relationship probably with Wallace Black Elk, uh, one of the students of Nicholas Black Elk. And he gives a lot of eyewitness testimony. That would be a good example to read if we have time later, because it's only about a page. Sure, sure. I tried to put in the third book cases that just seem airtight that there couldn't possibly be another explanation for it. There are just too many facts, you know, that had to be discovered in a short time for it to be coincidence. But anyway, so Bill Lyons, I read that. And then I forget who I asked, you know, what's next, basically. And I found Virgil Vogel's book, American Indian Medicine, that covered almost the entire span of the country up until about World War II. And the overview of that, although it's about an 800-page book, a, an expansion, needless to say, of his doctoral thesis, Virgil Vogel has about 800 pages of what happened in the first, you know, 400 years or almost five, 450 years of the country. And the yeah. biggest shock to me was that the Native Americans had the most advanced medical practice probably in the world, but at least in the Western Hemisphere. They had, this is in the 1700s, 1800s, they had, uh, and earlier, they were doing surgery, they had pain relievers, they had anesthetics, they had syringes, they uh, were really good at treating wounds, they would put in drain tubes, chest tubes, they had obstetricians that were women. They had a, a whole bunch of drugs. Here's a side light of just give you a couple of examples of things that they actually did solve. Yeah, we'll pick it up on the next segment. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 80 on your Rock Art podcast. This is uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel with our illustrious guest scholar, Don Lapone, author and rock art researcher extraordinaire. Don, when we uh, hit it on the other earlier uh, segment, you were just, uh, I think, beginning to sort of outline a bit of a case study or discuss some of the ways in which all of this uh, 
is beginning to un- be understood from the scientific community. Please continue. Well, the botanicals, I, I can think of three good examples of, and there's, they had, a, uh, the Native American practice at least had about 400 plants that formed the framework of their, what we call their medical practice. They also had separate from that, beyond that, what we would call like a spiritual practice or spiritual healing. But many times that was the last resort and they would use plants to cure people along with other techniques like surgery and, you know, things like that. But so three examples I can think of and what the physicians who came to see what they had heard about from Europe were just stunned because, well, they didn't have these plants, but they could not figure out how did the Native Americans get so far ahead of them, so far ahead of Europe that it had an industrial revolution, the Enlightenment, the Renaissance and everything. And yet here, these supposed simpletons were doing stuff that they could not even imagine. Okay, so the Native Americans get criticized. Uh, There's one popular book by a physician named Stone who blames them for being weak and not being resistant to their diseases and that they couldn't come up with anything. And that that is a common statement in the literature is that the Native Americans, the shaman, if they were so great, then how come they couldn't come up with cures for these diseases? Well, I found at least two diseases and I'm not finished looking yet, but they came up with two plant cures for two huge diseases, but because they were locked up and non-reservations and then nobody had paid any attention to what they had discovered until recently. The two diseases, you've probably heard of them, smallpox and malaria. It took the Amazonians less than around 25 years to maybe 50 years to discover the bark of the chinchona tree, which produces quinine which uh, is still used around the world uh, in some areas where there's not resistance. The other disease was smallpox, and that was developed by a what we call the Mohawks, but up in Nova Scotia, two surgeon generals from England saw her cure people. Eyewitness testimony. I sent you one of the articles, Alan. It's being mm-hmm. researched by University of Arizona and Arizona State University. They isolated the compounds. And the compounds are active against a number of viruses. Oh, and, and the other one is, you know, is more commonly heard of, but is no less of a, of a miracle, is Ayahuasca, which is a combination of two plants. One plant uh, suppresses the enzyme that destroys the DMT product in the other plant. And how would they ever figure this out? Now, remember... Although the the European American writers criticize the Native Americans for not finding cures to their disease, well, that's error number one. They did. But on the other hand, what exactly did they do? They haven't solved these diseases until very recently, like with the smallpox vaccine, which they don't use anymore. And today is very relevant because the one who has most of the smallpox samples in the world is Russia and have threatened to use it. And so this drug may become really relevant. Uh, It's from the purple pitcher plant, but they'll probably start producing it synthetically because of the lack of vaccine. 
if if that happens, we'll have to treat people and we'll treat them with this drug. They were a lot more innovative than we think. And so there's, to me, there's only two, how did they get there? How did they get so far ahead of the best minds in Europe? Well, either they're much smarter than we are, and having talked to a number of them, I, I wouldn't doubt that in my case, or they have another source of knowledge. What would the other source of knowledge be? Right, another source of knowledge is the key. And what is that other source of knowledge? The other source of knowledge, well, you hear words like, and you've heard these, grandfather, the creator, God. And this is where they're parallel to quantum science. And and quantum science has multiple realities that we call altered states of consciousness. And the big boon and interest in consciousness, not just by David Chalmers, but a lot of other people, Wallach and... There's another guy who wrote a big book, Glottfelder. Chalmers thinks it'll take us a century to figure out consciousness. But for your listeners, one of the main differences, I don't take quantum science to be like a blueprint for what the Native Americans are doing. The Native Americans were doing this long before quantum science ever came along, around 1900. But the parallels are really interesting. And... What was wrong with our old materialistic approach of uh, just material physics, like from Newton, is that it didn't explain much of the universe. Only about 5 to 10% of it is in the physical realm. So there, there were a lot of issues with uh, Newtonian physics. And so there'll probably be another theory someday beyond quantum. But right now, that's the limit of how we understand things. And quantum requires consciousness. So so what do we mean by quantum physics and why is that relevant to understanding Native American thought and shamanism? One of the principles in quantum is called non-local knowledge or wisdom versus local wisdom. And by that difference, we mean like local healing, for example, that the shaman do would be their plant-based medicine. You put a plant on a person's skin, or they, they swallow it, or it's injected, or it's used in some fashion, and there's a, a medicine man right there. Okay, so you have a cause and effect that's clearly discernible. Today's version would be you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you a prescription or surgery, and you take that and you get better. That's local. In Clifford Trafzer's book, which is the third book, Beyond Lions and uh, Vogel, there's a huge quantum leap in the quality of the information about Native Americans being able to heal non-locally because you have a living patient still alive, you have a healer still alive, you have a physician that was watching the whole thing happen still alive, and you have a medical record that uh, documents everything that happens. And so Cliff Travser's book is American Indian Medicine Ways from 2017. And Clifford Travser's part Heron Indian. And he works at the University of California, Riverside, where Daniel McCarthy worked. And they're also helping us with this Kumeyaay uh, archaeology internship. Cliff Travser's written a number of books. That one is uh, mostly on healers. 
but he's written a number of other books pertaining to medicine and Native Americans in Southern California. So he's a, a good source. Anyway, in his book, you have all these living principles that are doing miracles, essentially medical miracles. Give us an example. He opens American Indian medicine ways with a colleague coming into his office. She's in tears, crying. She can't even really spit out the words. She's so upset. And what happened is she went for a routine physical, and unfortunately, she has stage four breast cancer. So they want to do a mastectomy, chemo, radiation, and stage four, the average lifespan our survival rate, I think, is maybe a year. And it might even be shorter than that. But with everything that modern Western America medicine knows, they can give you a year maybe. So she knows that Cliff Trouser knows a bunch of healers. And she, since her case is hopeless, despite all of those interventions, she asks him, will you talk to a Native American healer for me? It just so happens that he has a long-term friend, that he wrote a book just about him, Kenneth Koswin, but he's in this book, the 2017 book. So the next day, the author, Travser, is going to an American Medical Association conference in Oklahoma City, where they talk about a number of issues, and one of them is Native American healers. And so this is the day that he meets Clifford and his wife is also a shaman or medicine woman, uh, Rita Koswung. And he talks to some other healers, but he decides to go with these two. So they're in Oklahoma City. And where is this doctor located? Uh, outside of Oklahoma City in some kind of rural area, but in that area, which is Cherokee. And the Cherokee that are there are the survivors and the descendants of the survivors of the Trail of Tears. So, I mean, there's just the emotion, uh, you know, running through the author's mind and, and really through my mind about what these people have been through, basically 500 years of Holocaust, and they are willing to help us. So what, so what happens to the patient? Well, so he goes, he goes over to, to Kenneth and Rita's house, and they have a prayer, and he sings a song, and the healer, Kenneth, kind of goes into a meditation within himself and he comes out and he says we are going to get that cancer and kill it destroy it tell the woman that she will be okay and he says i will do a ceremony for her and she'll live did either shaman meet the woman no only talked to her maybe on the phone okay i think they talked on the phone but no they never met Okay. So the woman goes in for her bilateral mastectomy and they do a pre-op. You know, they did a CAT scan or x-rays or something and took her blood uh, just to make sure that she, that, you know, the tumor had not extended in that time. And they couldn't find the tumor. They couldn't find any tumor, even by blood work. CAT scan can detect down to about a million cells. So it doesn't mean you're cured, but it sure be an improvement over stage four. But they could find no trace of tumor in her and there are other patients in in similar situations in this book and other books where taken as a whole it just can't be coincidence or you know it just happened uh stage four breast cancer to disappear from a human would be without intervention would 
would be almost impossible. I can't imagine how it would happen. Did the cancer ever come back? So Clifford Trapser, the, the writer, the author, is so excited that he has to call uh, the healer up right away and tell him he's all excited. And, and the healer's going, well, what did you expect? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this, this person, this one guy has had thousands of patients. And so we had, you and I had this idea that wouldn't that be a good study to do? Uh And, you know, if we could do a study of a couple hundred patients, uh, retroactive chart reviews, they're done all the time to meet hospital requirements, that would be a paper. And I don't think anybody has done it yet. Now, with this patient that uh, miraculously and instantaneously was healed from her breast cancer, did the cancer ever come back? No, I think. No. When the book was written, she was eight years out, something like that, eight or 10 years out, cancer-free, which is, would also be unheard of. You know, she didn't get any treatment, so. Well, I think we're going to quit there on the second segment. And this third segment, I think we're going to hear some more remarkable stories, miraculous healings. And I think we'll even touch upon rock art. See you <laughs> in the flip-flop, gang. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. This is the uh, third and final segment of Rock Art episode 80 with Don Lapone giving us the uh, story and the saga of understanding shamanism in its uh, current manifestations and in the past as well from a sophisticated and revolutionary view of the uh, accuracy and reality of successful intervention in disease. How's that? Yeah, I think that's what to, uh, disease and beyond. So done. Tell us another one. Give us another example. Okay. Well, let me tell you two. One is very fast. The elder black elk, Nicholas Black Elk. Yes. Had, mm-hmm. Let's talk about three events in his life. It'll only take a minute. First event. He was at Custard's Last Stand at the Little Bighorn. Incredibly, I think he was 11 or 12 years old, and he killed at least three soldiers and scalped them. That's who he was at 10 years old, say. Okay, at Wounded Knee, which was, I think, about 25 years later. No, about 15 years later, maybe. So he's in his mid-20s. He 
uh, is nearby when the massacre starts by the 400 cavalry men uh, shooting 300 unarmed women, children, babies, and a couple of old sick guys that were laying as a wagon. So Nicholas Black Elk is not far away, and he hears the shooting. He runs over there with his horse and his rifle. He comes up behind the cavalrymen and sees that he could probably kill 20 of them, but then, you know, eventually he would die. And he said it to himself, and there have been several books written first person by ghost authors and him, I'm not going to die today. And he puts his rifle down, and he rides around from the back to the front where all the bullets are going, and he sees a couple of babies or children or something that's not clear to me, but he rides into the gunfire, and they also had cannons. He rides into the gunfire, picks up the kids, and rides back out. So you have to think that he would have the majority of the 400 rifles aimed right at him. Uh, He's the biggest target, and yet he didn't even get hit. That brings into question, I I don't know if I can accept this, but there were a couple of people, very powerful, Sue, usually Geronimo, Crazy Horse, Elk, that seemed to have bullet immunity. And it's something that some of the Native Americans said, yeah, we can do that. And they were never seriously hurt in battle, not any one of them. So he rode back out with the babies, went and put them down with the moms, And people said, what's wrong with your clothing? And supposedly it was full of bullet holes, but he was untouched. Okay, so that's where he was at age 25. He had evolved from being a warrior to a more spiritual person. Okay, now the third event was he went to live, I believe, in a South Dakota town. And there was a huge forest fire one year. It had not rained in a year. They didn't have water to put it out, and it was gigantic. And I checked out the forest fire. It really did happen. And so the white community came to him and said, can you do anything? Because they did have a good relationship. They really honored Black Elk, and Black Elk did many uh, cures for their people. People were terminal, and he repaired them. So anyway, he said, well, I'll try. And so he did a sun dance, which you know is the most serious ceremony in the real Sundance, the participants hang on hooks that are put through their ribs and their collarbones. And it's a sacrifice and it's meant to be respectful and honorable, but it was completely banned for 120 years. And it was during this time, it was against the law. Blackout could have lost his freedom and uh, may have never practiced again. But anyway, he went ahead and did it along with other participants. The third day they were hanging there, it poured. It didn't rain again for another year, but the fire went out and Blackout could make, there were several events described in his autobiography, biographies, where he made it rain on on command just to show that he had power. So that's Black Elk, the elder Black Elk. Okay, there's a short description in uh, Lyon's book of Wallace Black Elk, the grandson. And I'm just going to paraphrase this because of time. But it's in uh, Bill Lyon's book, page 219 and 220, for those listeners that might have it. And if you don't have it, really, you should get all three of these if you're interested in hearing the other side of the story. So this uh, Indian couple, I don't know what what kind, but it was uh, along the Missouri River. 
had lost their boy. He'd been missing for a while, you know, a few days or something. They did not think that he was alive, but they at least wanted to find his body. And the sheriff had been looking along with divers and everything else, and they, they couldn't find him. So even though they were Christians, they came to Black Elk, Wallace Black Elk and his family to find the boy's body. So as per usual, they did a sacred pipe ceremony that the Black Elks accepted. And then they went to the parents' home and they did a ceremony there, something like a sweat lodge ceremony. So the Black Elks prayed to the spirit helper, in this case, um, who would be a beaver because the beaver would be in the, in the river. And so they started praying and singing songs, which is part of ceremony. And the beaver spirit came to them. I don't know if it was an apparition or it's just, you know, telepathic. But he came to him and said, sing these four songs. If I do not return by the time you're done singing, I could not find him. But if I do find him, I will return. So they're on their fourth song, of course. And the spirit comes back. And so this I'm going to quote. So the beaver spirit or spirit helper said, you sang the four songs and I returned. He shook the water off and you could see water tracks on the floor. He said, yes, I have found him. He was buried underneath the stump in the sand. So I dug him out. There is a curve over there and like a wall. There was a tree growing there, so the roots stick out of the wall. So I took him there and hung him over the roots. Tomorrow, go over to that river. You go there with the chuampala, the sacred pipe. Then you walk along the river. When you hear me, you come in that direction. You pray and you walk in that direction. You come over to the edge of the water. You look down. You stand there and look until you see the boy. When you signal, they will come to pick him up. So we thanked him and he left. The next day we went over there. We walked along the river and we heard that sound, a swoosh of a beaver tail hitting the water. So we turned around and headed in that direction where the beaver was. We continued to pray. We walked straight to the edge and looked down. So we were standing there and watching and soon we saw him. His arm was hanging over the tree root just below the water line. So the sheriff was there the entire time, and he ran back to the radio. Pretty soon the boats came. They were about a mile and a half away. When they got there, some people dove into the water and pulled the boy out. Incredible. Incredible. And witnessed by law enforcement, you know, among other people, were involved, you know, at the original uh, meeting and, and that. I can't see... This is non-local knowledge. There's no cause and effect. It comes from another reality, I guess. We hear the term altered states of consciousness so often that I, I underestimated, wow, if you, if you could do this, even with years of training that both Black Elks had, they weren't born to it like Kenneth Cosgrove was. It takes decades to get to this point. But boy, what if you can get to this point? It opens up a lot of possibilities. So it's in the realm of what they call remote viewing. Yeah. Give us a, a quick thumbnail 
of how this discussion and this particular episode relates back to rock art? Well, you know, that, that's always on my mind because I'm wandering far off the rock art trail. Like, you know, I want people who are interested in rock art to get something out of this because, I, in my opinion, we need to move on from a lot of because there's so much more out there that is uh, more useful. So in our La Rumorosa uh, survey, we ended up with 170 sites, about 2,250 panels. And one of the recurring themes that we saw is exactly a blueprint for, let me name a specific citation, uh, Roland Griffiths, The Godlike Experiences with DMT. It involves like 10 or 20,000 patients over 20 years, 25 years. It's commonly available on academia, EDU, or any other place that you go. What we see in Lurumorosa is so much more relevant to like these modern clinical studies as to what people see today. And one of the most common themes is when people are in altered states of consciousness, drug-wise or otherwise, they meet, say about 80 to 90% of them on DMT meet an emissary, another word for spirit helper. They meet some spiritual being out there who gives them knowledge like where is the lost boy, how to heal somebody, what to do. And the emissary, even in people that are not shaman at all, often changes their life by giving them insight that they could not achieve otherwise. And some listeners may be going, oh, that's just a drug-induced hallucination. What do these beings look like and how are they rendered? Well, remember, the communication is going on telepathically, but people say that they often see an angel, an animal, uh, a luminescent being, those types of things. It's usually friendly and wants to help. And it may take you on, a, on travels to show you what it wants to show you. In street lingo, it's like uh, going on a trip. And it's, it's almost funny because they almost always are walking, which is how would you portray going on a trip? You know, if you were, if you had that sensation, but you couldn't really do it on granite and with a little pigment, you'd have people traveling or flying. And you see a lot of yeah. that in the Lumarosa. Yeah. But you'd see this emissary theme over and over again. And some of the examples are so good. Some of them were Malcolm Rogers' discoveries. Uh, he didn't catch mm -hmm. on to what was going on completely, but he found them. Kofa Wilderness and along the Colorado River and East County, San Diego. I think we have about 15 of these examples that have survived. Are these animal-human hybrids or figures? Yes. And in, at least for the Kumeyaay, and you would know beyond that, uh, animals were the sure. first shaman. And so that's why they're honored so much and, and treated as such as the original shaman went back, you know, transitioned. Well, it's, it's interesting because you, one of the more prominent papers on Great Basin theology or religion, uh, Desert West, is done by Goss. And he talks about the layered universe and talks about the animals associated with particular layers of the universe. And he calls them shamanistic animal deities. 
and they're they're represented as sort of the kingpins of other animals as well. So it could be a bighorn sheep, it could be an eagle, it could be a coyote, mm-hmm. it could be a wolf, it could be a the serpent. So, but but the each one of those figures are of course associated with a different layer of the universe and a color. So it's, it's very interesting to think or to posit. And in some cases there's the cartography of mm-hmm. religion expressed on rock art. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think they're still that way. Yes, I do too. Well, that's all we have time for. You, you want to, you want to sign off Don and tell, uh, our audience, something uh, to wet their whistle? <laughs> well, Alan and I are working on this third book for Lua Morosa, where we go into a lot of these things and many more things that strengthen the case that the Native Americans are a gifted people. And the hope is that there'll be a better relationship between, or when I say a more unifying relationship between the Native Americans and science. And so that's the hope. Amen. And so I don't know. I'm I love it. working as fast as I can, but my old brain is not as good as it <laughs> Don, you're doing, a good, you're doing a great job. Okay. Thank you. See you on the flip-flop next week for episode 81. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. Please consider joining our growing core of members over at arcpodnet.com slash members. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.